Hello and welcome to We've Got History Between Us. This podcast is brought to you by VOICE, Volunteers and Collections Engagement. VOICE is a volunteer-led initiative from a team of seven volunteers at the Centre for Research Collections at the University of Edinburgh and the CRC has got history. Over the coming months, We've Got History will be exploring the different aspects of collections, archives and beyond to the wider museum circuit and heritage sector. We're hoping to bring you interviews, discussion panels, we'll be delving into exhibitions, artefacts and new acquisitions. We'll also shine a light on the different types of volunteering going on at the CRC, so soon we hope you get to meet the team and the wider group. In this episode, we are letting you listen again to the monthly webinar Meet the Series. Every month we meet in the virtual world and introduce you to someone involved in collections, archives and the heritage sector. Our aim is to celebrate all things collections and archives, the diversity and range across the CRC, and to start this new way of shining a spotlight on examples of the fantastic work going on and the incredible people that are involved with it. The series won't always introduce a CRC staff member either. It may be a volunteer, a society at the university, or a guest speaker from outside industry. In this episode, we meet the Special Collections Conservator, Emily Hick. This is a reminder that you can attend our webinars yourself, gaining access to more material live and the ability to ask questions on the day. But for now, meet Emily, who discusses her pathway towards becoming the Special Collections Conservator at the CRC. Hello, Emily. Thank you Hello. so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really, really well, thanks. And it's, it's so great to be a part of this um, initiative. It sounds really exciting and it's, it's good to be able to do something different on a, on a day where I'm normally, you know, hunched in front of the computer replying to emails. So, yeah, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yes, I feel exactly the same. It's grey and horrible out there. It's fun in here. Well, before we get on to the bigger questions, where did you grow up, Emily? So you might not be able to guess from my accent, but um, I actually grew up in Northumberland. So I haven't really moved too far away from home. So I lived there from about 18 months old until I was uh, 18, yeah. How long have you been Scotland-based or Edinburgh-based? I came to Scotland first of all for university and started in 2004 at uh, University of Glasgow. Studied history of art there. um, I just fell in love with Scotland and fell in love with um, a Scottish man from the Highlands. been in, in Scotland pretty much pretty much ever since a few kind of years going different places but yeah pretty much since then um, moved to Edinburgh in 2014 for this job. Nice well what was the first job you ever had? First job but the first job is probably after I left high school and I was uh, working as a telephone market researcher so I was one of those people that would phone you up when you're about to have your dinner saying, oh, would you mind spending 10 minutes talking about, um, I don't know, <laughs> something, something strange like a, a product or um, NHS or something like that. Yeah, interesting, interesting job. Paid my way to take a gap year in um, South America. Yeah, the fear of cold calling. You get good at, you get good at small talk. Yeah, yeah, it was um, bit of, a bit of a learning curve and a lot of people just, you know, hanging up on you and, and that kind of thing. So, but a lot of people were actually really, really lovely and didn't mind answering all my questions. But yeah, you had to kind of grow thick skin and just, just keep on, keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was hoping before that we, we got into your role at the CRC, you might be able to give us an idea of how you got there. Was this a job that you were aiming for or something that you kind of fell into along the way? Yeah, so it's, um, I think conservation, because it's so specialist, it, it's not really something that many people 
just fall into. But I didn't really hear about conservation until I was in my final year of my undergraduate um, at Glasgow University. And as I mentioned, I studied history of art there and we had this lecture on technical art history. So that's kind of really looking at the kind of materials that make art. And there was a really interesting lecture on painting where years of research had gone into looking at the colours of the flowers and what that symbolised. found out later on that actually the pigment had changed colour over time. So the meaning was kind of completely different to what they thought. And I just thought that was like so interesting that, you know, so much research had gone into thinking, you know, it was one way, but actually it was completely different. It's kind of, I guess, where I first started thinking about the materiality of art and, you know, how, how I was interested in that side of things rather than, you know, selling artwork or working in a gallery or something like that. So I graduated from Glasgow in, in 2008 and that obviously kind of corresponded with the last financial crash and it was a bit of a nightmare and so difficult to get any kind of work and you know especially because the heritage sector is always quite competitive anyway so I spent a few years waitressing which is uh, always a good experience classic Um, graduate job yeah yeah has to be done by it I'm sure during that time I kind of realized that I wanted something a bit different and I wanted something that I was really gonna enjoy and you know get my teeth into and really just love going to work each day rather than just kind of being a slave for the money or something. So yeah, I started kind of thinking about other kind of roles that could use my skills and kind of came up with conservation again. So I decided that I, I wanted to kind of explore this further before kind of delving into doing this degree in, in conservation. Um, so that's the kind of traditional route for m- most people getting into conservation is doing a, an undergraduate degree in a related subject, but then specialising at, at master's level. But yeah, it was obviously like a big you know, financial commitment and a two year degree as well is quite a lot of time. So I wanted to make sure that kind of right for me. So I did a bit of volunteering. I spent conserve warm paintings in, in Scotland and elsewhere as well. Also visited some conservation studios in Glasgow and also spent um, two months working um, at, at a Tibetan monastery in India. I just love, I love to travel. So I was kind of looking for something to kind of get get out of Glasgow for a bit actually because it's a bit <laughs> you know grey and miserable and go somewhere new and different and I found this um this volunteer opportunity online the Tibet Heritage Fund so I went out to India for two months the northern part of India in a, in a place called Sikkim which is on the border with all Tibet and Bhutan it's a really really interesting place so it's part of India but it's very um Tibetan and yeah I worked in a, a, t- a Tibetan monastery conserving the wall paintings there yeah, as a, as a part of that, I was removing kind of the, the dust and the kind of aged, discoloured varnish from the wall paintings using a tiny cotton bud. <laughs> wow. So it was really, you know, it was very, very time consuming, very repetitive work, but just just so rewarding. And and just from that moment, I knew that conservation was going to be right for me because it, it was such a repetitive task, but I found that I could just keep on going each day, each day and just loving it each time. And yeah, really, really enjoyed the experience. So after that, I decided to uh, apply for my master's and studied at Northumbria University, which has uh, two conservation degrees, one in works and art on paper and one in paintings. So in conservation, you, don't, you tend to specialise in a, a certain material subject. You don't really, it's just a massive subject to study. You can't, you can't conserve everything, you know what I mean? It's, so you tend to specialise in a material type. It might be metals or, you know, ethnographic objects or textiles or paintings or paper. 
I ended up choosing paper because um, there's just so much of it <laughs> and there tends to be more job opportunities in paper conservation because you can work in you know libraries and archives or in kind of fine art and paper conservation so it's, I found it a bit more kind of diverse and thought there'd be more kind of job opportunities there so yeah that's that's kind of how I got into conservation I was really really lucky actually and on, on the day that I handed my dissertation in for my master's I got offered a job at Annick Castle Archives which is where Harry Potter was filmed <laughs> that was a really really fantastic location and I yeah I worked there for about nine months before being offered the job at uh, where I am now and that was uh, mm-hmm. 2014 so been there um, for yeah seven seven years now what a day of celebration handing in the dissertation and the job offer at the same time yeah. <laughs> it was fantastic uh, yes yeah and I think I would I would say quite unusual as well quite very just right place at the right time just very lucky um, but it's not always always the case of course well, now you are the Special Collections Conservator. What does that entail at the CRC? Are you still working with paper? Yes, yeah, still focused on paper. So yeah, my main duties are kind of carrying out practical treatments, mostly on the rare books and the archives collections. So this is kind of looking at any damage that might have been caused to the collections over time. So it might, it might be something that happened like years and years and centuries ago or just built up over time or something that kind of happened fairly recently. But yeah, looking at the condition and repairing any damage so it can be safely handled by students and staff and any any researchers that that come in. That's my that's my main role. But I so I do just mainly work with paper, but I do offer kind of advice for other material types if we do have anything else in the collection it was volunteers or interns or, or, or project project conservators that we have in to do other kind of work. I might be carrying out my own you know research on the collections either kind of literature research or maybe scientific analysis with kind of our x-ray fluorescence device. I might be like looking at different collections and scoping them out for projects that are coming up. So we have like a lot of digitization projects. So I might be looking at the collections to make sure that they're they're ready to be digitised and they can be safely digitised or if they need a bit of conservation work before we do that. I might be training other staff members on how to handle certain objects correctly. It's a it's a real a real mix <laughs> of, uh, of different different responsibilities. Yeah, it's sort of changes changes every day. <laughs> If you if you could describe a day in the life of Emily, conservator at the CRC, or the realities of the job, yeah, that would that I think that would be quite difficult. Like I say, is it, I mean, obviously now everything's been affected by COVID, and I'm 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 working from home unfortunately all the time. But um, yeah, normally I'd probably get in and check my emails firstly, and you know just respond to any kind of urgent things there. Um, but like I say, it could be it could be really diverse. I might ha- I might be able to spend a lot of time on doing a kind of conservation treatment, or I might be going to meetings and talking about upcoming projects with different kind of collection managers. Or like I say, I might be in the storeroom doing a survey of of a collection. Or we also do a lot of kind of outreach events, so you know things like this. Or also did a series of what we call crowdsourcing conservation events, where we get volunteers to come in and carry out kind of basic kind of conservation 
treatments like rehousing or removing metal fasteners from paper paper collections to um, you know carry out kind of conservation work on a large scale rather than me just doing it all by myself kind of thing <laughs> it's really it's really hard to kind of give a, a, a day in the life to be honest because it's all very different but all, obviously always very collections based like I'm always mm got my hands on some kind of collection item or working directly with amazing historical objects for me the kind of practical side of things is probably the most exciting and the, and, and the most interesting thing but I'm definitely not sitting down all day it's very active and um, yeah moving about and working on lots of different things. Mm. Well what kind of methods are available to you at the CRC for preserving or restoring items? I guess the question would be how do you decide which approach to take on an individual object or something like that? Mm, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, there's there's so many different techniques and materials that you can use to collections. We we have a, like a minimal interventive policy at the library, so we're just doing the minimal amount possible to stabilise it for use, but, and we're not, you know, trying to make things look like they did when when they were first made, or you know, it, we're just doing, and we're just we're trying to tr- preserve as, as much as possible the kind of historic integrity of the of the object. So yeah, we the way that we kind of decide on or what treatments and methods to carry out very much depends on the object itself, what it's made from, obviously, what what kind of condition it's in what's its past use what's what's its kind of historical past life so we don't want to erase those kind of important little clues that that might be left from from its previous use how it's going to be used in the future as well so if it's going to be used frequently in say a student seminar my treatment method or materials that I use might be slightly different to if it's something that's only requested once every few years we don't just carry out the same treatments each time on each item. We, we think about each object in, individually and, and tailor the treatments to it. Does that make sense? Do I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. I know it's such a big topic or it's difficult to, to get into specific things. I was actually yeah. wondering if you could describe the XFR machine, perhaps? XRF. That's it, yeah. yes. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, yeah, XRF that's, um, stands for X-ray fluorescence. So this is a machine that we use to carry out kind of elemental analysis on the collection items. So yeah, we can we can use this device to kind of tell us what certain items are made from. It's only only, only used for um, non-organic materials. We can't use it for organic materials. So if we want to know like a, a type of metal, for example, we can figure that out. But we wouldn't be able to look at a, a piece of basketry or a feather or something like that, and to, you know, and, and use that for an, an analysis. The way it, the way that it works, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but I'll just give a kind of a, a, a basic overview. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. Basically, it uses X-rays. Um, so an X-ray beam is um, fired at the object, and this X-ray beam has enough energy to displace some of the electrons in, in the atoms of the object in, in the inner shells of the atom. So these are displaced and they're moved from the inner shells to the outer shells. And this kind of displacement um, releases a huge amount of energy. That energy is characteristic to certain material uh, element type. So for example, gold and silver will have a different kind of characteristic energy release, if that makes sense. So that release is kind of recorded by the XRF device and then that process has it and um, we have special software that you know, you know analyzes it and um, puts together a graph or what we call a spectra 
showing different peaks at certain kind of energy levels. And then that can show us what element it's made from. Does that make sense so far? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but it's not like a point and click device, you know, uh, you know, point and shoot and you get the suddenly answers. You have to do a bit of your own research as well, because mm. sometimes the kind of characteristic peaks are quite close for two different elements. So you can't just go rely on, you know, rely on what the software is telling you. You have to know a little bit about the object to begin with to be able to interpret the, the results that you're getting. It's good as also if you can to kind of back it up with some other kind of analytical technique to kind of make sure that the results that you're getting are are correct. It's, it's, a, it's a really, really useful device and it's something that I've kind of just recently started using, to be honest. Came from like an arts background, like I said, so it was quite tricky for me to get my head around the kind of the science part but it's yeah it's, it's really it's absolutely fascinating and I've had some good projects working with it recently. Mm, yeah what machine to be able to to get to use um, mm. it sounds like it's such kind of interesting detective work almost like you see having to bring a few different elements together looking yeah. at different evidence. Definitely that's, that's what I kind of feel like conservation is it is a lot of detective work you know you've You've got to know about the history of the object, the materials that it's made from, how it was used in the past, and you kind of piece together all these little things and find out so much about the object. Yeah, fascinating. I don't know if, I mean, is the machine dangerous to use the materials too many times or anything like that? Completely non-invasive, so it's not. it won't damage the the, the object at all from, from working on it. So some other kind of um, scientific techniques that we use in conservation are, are um, what we call destructive. So they might take a really small sample from a, from an object to, to analyse it, but the XRF won't damage the object at all. Um, but obviously it's using x-rays, so that can be harmful to human health. <laughs> um, so we had to, we have to go through, um, you know, uh, basic radiation training to make sure that we understand you know the the dangers of using xrf and the safe way safe way to use it so it's so not like every anyone at the crc can use this device it's only the people who have been specially trained in terms of priorities of items it kind of it there's a number of different ways really that things are selected for conservation we're not just kind of starting at bay one in the you know on a shelf and working through slowly. We're um, you know thinking what's going to be most most useful and what's going to be used in the in you know, in the future. But, um, so normally I kind of have a meeting with my line manager at the start of the year and we discuss any kind of priorities and at what point I'm going to do them. I'll also talk to kind of collection managers, so you know rare books and archives and art collections. If they've got any upcoming projects that need a bit of support on, then I'll I'll put that into my work plan as well. So that kind of slots in kind of as and when really throughout the year, whereas other projects might be scheduled in advance. Um, we have exhibitions and loans as well. So um, I kind of know those in advance. So I might prioritise work at certain times to make sure objects are ready for for those particular periods. Uh, and we also have things that are conservation that, that's flagged up through maybe the reading room. So someone's requested something, but it's been noticed that it's not in a very good condition or new acquisitions that are coming in, cataloging projects might flag up some conservation work. And normally those are highlighted to, to myself and also the collection manager of that material. 
and the collection manager will look at it and say, well, this is this is very high priority for me. I want Emily to work on this as soon as possible, or this is something that's not used very often. It can wait. So that's another way of prioritising the items. Yeah, there's lo- mm. lots of different things that kind of feed into my work plan, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. When it comes to assessing a piece, uh, are you sort of saying that people come to you rather than you uh, are assessing all the pieces that are coming into the collections? Yeah, I, I guess it probably would be because there's just so, there's obviously such a, a huge collection that I can't I can't see it all, and so it's often we, we rely on you know collection managers or other kind of staff to um, flag up items that that mm-hmm. needs be conserved so all, all new staff get um handling training and and told about how you know what kind of conservation problems to look out for what things could potentially get worse through through handling or use and we also have refresher training every year as well so that's the kind of way that it's normally flagged up to me rather than me kind of going into a storeroom and looking at everything on a shelf and being oh that that needs a bit of work sometimes <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a a favourite material to work with? I don't know, perhaps from uh, a time when you were working in the archives or or if your work has uncovered a story about pieces uh, that you were working with? Um, Yeah, I mean, everything's so interesting in its own kind of way, but I I really like working with kind of our Asian collections and um, I think just because of my past working in India and also travelled a bit in um, Southeast Asia. I've always been had a real kind of strong connection to those kind of pieces and just find them really, really beautiful and really, really interesting. Um, so I always kind of jump at the chance to work with those kind of collection <laughs> collection types. But no, maybe not maybe not a specific kind of material type, but maybe that kind of collection collection type that I like to work with. Mm. I was wondering if you if you felt like there was any preconceptions surrounding your role. Are there any stereotypes that people throw at conservation? Yeah, I think a lot of people think that conservators are quite quiet and, you know, just sit by themselves in a studio, spending hours and hours working on kind of one ancient manuscript. Um, But I, I don't think that's really, really the case. I mean, I think most conservators really love kind of sharing what they do and they're really kind of enthusiastic about what they do so they like they love to talk about it yeah we and I think now in, in conservation maybe change maybe in the past it was more like this but now in conservation uh, we have more of a kind of minimal interventive treatment policy so we're not spending hours and hours working on on one piece it's it's not like we're going to you know quickly so we're not doing it properly but it's you know it's a different kind of treatment techniques to stabilize things rather than making them bomb proof <laughs> <laughs> what people expect is that you're going to be just sitting at a desk solely working on an object and not really talking to anyone else but it is very kind of you're working with lots of different people and you're and you're discussing different ideas with different people all the time so it's a very um, interactive profession mm-hmm. more collaborative than expected perhaps yeah I think so I think so yeah you kind of touched on it a little bit already but I was wondering whether uh, or how you feel that COVID-19 has affected your work? Yeah, so yeah, as I mentioned, I'm working from home full time at the moment. She's obviously don't have any access to collection items, which is my main <laughs> my main thing. So I haven't been able to do any kind of practical treatments. Um, though I did, you know, when, when we were the restrictions before Christmas were lifted slightly, I was going into the library two days a week 
to do practical work and then coming back here to do kind of um, home-based work uh, the rest of the time doing doing the practical treatments is a bit of a change for me just to be stuck at the desk all the time research projects that I never really had the chance to do there's just so much kind of other things going on we've been able to kind of trial new ways of working with volunteers so we had like a virtual volunteer before Christmas worked really well and you know also thinking about like events like this or maybe thinking about doing an online training session been, been attending some like online conferences which I probably wouldn't have had the chance to go to otherwise so it's changed yeah it's definitely changed work dramatically but I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to learn a lot from it and, and take and take positives from it for sure nice yeah yeah totally that's all we can do at the moment this is really all fascinating and definitely tons of new stuff to me there's just so much to get into I'm sure that we could talk for ages but I'm just aware that I want to get to the audience as well and give them some time to ask questions so I think for the moment if we move to the quick fire set of silly questions What was the last book you read? The last book I read, um, I actually have been reading a book called Soul for Happy. So I'm a part of a book club with some, some friends that we started during lockdown. And each month we kind of um, recommend a book that we really like for other people to read. So and my sister-in-law actually recommended this book called Soul for Happy. And it's by, I can't remember the name, the full name of the guy, his first name's Mo or something but he is like a top engineer at um, Google I so, say like super intelligent guy um but he sadly son, his son died at the age of the early 20s or something like that so real devastating loss and basically the his book is about different ways that he's kind of solved for being happy following that kind of traumatic time and um and also kind of I think just dealing with the kind of fact that he was this big successful guy but actually still doesn't really feel very happy inside. So it's basically kind of like little kind of um, um, tips and techniques to be happy, but from like an engineering point of view, which is quite interesting. Mm, that's a fantastic lockdown recommendation. Yeah, yeah, I'd recommend uh, it. <laughs> I was wondering if you could recommend a cafe or restaurant in Edinburgh, perhaps a personal favourite? Oh, that's, that's a tricky one because I, I mentioned that I don't think, I think I mentioned earlier that I don't live in Edinburgh, so I don't go out very often in Edinburgh. When we when I was working there full time before COVID, in those good old days, me and other conservatives would often go to the Nile Valley Cafe, so you know about it, and they do these amazing like African wraps, and they're super cheap and you know really quick, great thing to grab for lunch. So that was that's something that I'd always um, recommend: cheap and cheerful, but very tasty food. <laughs> Yeah, anyone on the George Square campus, good choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you prefer physical books or ebooks? Um, I think I prefer physical books. Though I do have a Kindle, and I do like I'm on a, on a train or something. It's good to have your 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 Kindle, you know, with you because it's a bit easier to carry around. But if I if I had the choice, I'd probably always choose a physical book. Preferably with a cup of tea and uh, a nice warm fire to sit behind. <laughs> Very nice, yeah, yeah. Have you ever had late fines on a library book? Oh, I don't think I have, but I have once completely destroyed a library book, which I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> 
having comes to like when I was in Glasgow as a student and I had a book in my bag and like I think my water bottle exploded or something all over it and it just it just ruined it and I felt really really awful so maybe that was like a sign of things to come <laughs> be a conservative in the future <laughs> it was beyond preservation <laughs> yeah unfortunately <laughs> do you have a tv recommendation for everyone during during lockdown Oh, TV recommendation. I've watched so much TV, but it's probably not all very <laughs> any good. Recently, I've been watching this whole series on Scientology by Leah Remini. So um, she's the she's the actress in King of Queens. But anyway, she's a successful actress and was part of Scientology for about 34 years until she kind of split from the religion and is basically kind of now exposing all the, the, the craziness that's going on inside of, of the church. So I'd, 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 rec- I'd recommend that. It's quite like eye-opening. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fantastic, yeah. Well, thank you. Emily, you have survived the quick fire round of questions. Okay. <laughs> we are going to open the floor to the audience now. Martha, I don't know how things are working or if you, if you have questions. Yeah, so we have a few. We have, I think, five. But if anyone has uh, any more while we're talking, then please just send them into the chat. So uh, the first two we have are from Liga. The first is to do with what kind of education you need before going into the job. So she asks, um, is a bachelor's degree with five years of work experience competitive enough if applying for a job that requires a master's degree? I have a BA degree from another country and have heard many European museum, European museum conservators have got their job without master's level education. But in the UK, the job requirements always seem to include masters or postgraduate level training. Mm. Yeah, I think it does seem to be the case that you normally require a a, a master's degree. Not that, not that it should be that way, because I think, like you say, having five years' experience is is equivalent to, to doing a you know potentially doing a master's degree. But I I guess maybe some employers look at the master's degree and they can like they can see. That you've covered this kind of broad range of, of of topics and because it is so competitive a lot of employers might just look at the qualifications first and if that's one of the you know essential criteria is having a master's degree or post, postgraduate qualification then they might automatically just kind of cut you out of of the kind of selection round if that makes sense it's unfortunate because it you know it's such a big financial and time commitment to do a postgraduate degree I know it's not available for everyone but I know there are kind of new initiatives kind of happening in conservation to try to change the way that people can get into conservation so there's a lot more kind of traineeships and apprenticeships coming about ICON do a whole um, series of really good internships and traineeships for for people who don't necessarily have the, the qualifications of like a master's degree in, in specifically conservation. I guess the other way you could, is maybe getting in contact with with institutions before there's a job advert and saying like I've got this experience could I come and meet you and in, in a way just getting your your foot in the door before there's actually a, an, an advert out there and at least they know you and they, they know what you can do. Maybe a bit of volunteering can sometimes does lead to um, you know potentially a, a a job or at least a kind of good contact that makes sense yeah <laughs> yeah no that sounds like great advice thank you so Liga, I have one more question this is a lot more technical I actually don't know what this means because I'm not a conservator but I'm sure you will she asks um, how does the accreditation process work for conservators in the UK 
I've trained in an accredited program in restoration and conservation in a different country. Do mm-hmm. I need another accreditation in order to run a private business in the UK? I don't know if you know the answer to this, but yeah, um, yeah, I'm actually going through accreditation process myself at the moment. So for those of you who don't know, accreditation is basically just a process to go through that where you're assessed by other conservators and you're assessed against five standards that ICON, which is the Institute of Conservation, have published to kind of show that you're a well-rounded um, conservator. So it involves doing a application form where you discuss five projects where you, where you think demonstrate these five standards um, and then also a day-long assessment where you're assessed by two other conservators um, to, to, you know, to make sure that you are kind of matching these standards and the kind of ICON code of conduct conduct I think I mean you could definitely you don't have to be accredited to be a conservator in the UK so like like I say I haven't got my accreditation yet and the master's degrees that are available in the UK aren't you know accredited degrees so you can start working in the UK without having gone through this accreditation process but it just shows to other that you that you know what you're talking about basically and icon have a conservation register where they list all their accredited conservators. So if, if you are thinking about getting something conserved, it's worth looking through this this list of conservators to make sure that you are, um, you, you know, you're sure you're getting the, the top people and clients that you, top, top advice and the correct advice. Yeah, I think does that answer the question or have I? Yeah, no, I think that's good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so the next question is from uh, Yona who asks, what is the strangest paper material you've ever encountered? I've interacted with paper ma- made of pro- processed moose poop. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> oh, that's cool. I haven't, I haven't seen that. <laughs> that sounds amazing. There's some things that I kind of initially thought were paper, but then you know, weren't paper. <laughs> I think kind of early on in my career, I remember. In, this kind of it was really kind of smooth looking kind of paper um, almost like it'd been I don't know like really hot pressed to make a really shiny surface but when I actually looked at it closer it was you know um, textile with a really fine layer of what do you call it like gypsum you know um, plaster plaster Paris you know that kind of thing that white kind of yeah and and also yeah another one a similar thing where I I thought it was a paper initially, but when I, I when I looked closer, I realised it wasn't. It was this thing called tracing cloth, which was kind of an early form of some textile that had been treated with starch and then like hot pressed with an iron to make it translucent. So it looked it looked just like tracing paper, but actually on closer inspection, again it was textile. So um, such such an amazing diversity of materials. You've got to have your wits about you. <laughs> yeah, cool. Wow. Um, yeah, so the next question is from uh, Fahana, who asks, what's been your most challenging or complicated project? Trying to, trying to think which has been a really interesting project a couple of years ago. It was I think, an object that we have in the collection, um, the Marabarata. And this is like a, a 72 metre scroll. So you needed this kind of enclosure to be able to um, easily view it. But the enclosure wasn't, you know, with the the Hindu Hindu epic poem written onto this scroll, and um, it was housed in a 
box which had these kind of rollers inside um, so you could view it. So it was basically round around, round around one roller here and goes over to this side here and uses a key to turn the rollers to be able to view the whole thing. Uh, like I said, it's 72 metres long, um, but only about, I don't know, 15 centimetres wide. You know, original to the item itself, it was, been, it was like a later probably Victorian edition, whereas the, the scroll itself was, um, I think, from the late 1700s. The trouble was is this, this box was actually causing damage to the scroll itself. So um, because it was being round around these tight rollers, it was causing stresses to the kind of paper that was closest to the rollers. And also along the edges where it was rubbing along the side of the box, it was causing it to fray. So it wasn't really necessarily in a very bad condition in terms of conservation, but it was more complex in the idea of whether or not we should remove it from this box because it was even though the box was kind of helping us view it, it wasn't original to the piece and also it was kind of causing damage to the piece. So it was kind of like an ethical kind of problem of whether or not we should be changing changing this object and whether or not this new edition has now become part of the history of the object. You know, so this is what I was kind of trying to relate to earlier about we don't just treat every object the same and we wouldn't necessarily just take it out of the box just because the box is causing damage. We're thinking about all these kind of ethical issues. Yeah, so it's still it's still in the box and we're still pondering what to do. <laughs> and it's actually quite tricky to take it out of the box as well. Do you know what I mean? So there's a danger of potentially causing damage when you're removing it. So there's lots of really interesting things to think about. Yeah, that sounds like a slightly unanswerable dilemma. But in, <laughs> yeah. in that vein, uh, John asks, have you damaged or have you witnessed irreparable damage to an important document? Wow, I haven't damaged anything. <laughs> so I don't know if I would admit it <laughs> if I had. Have I witnessed any da um, damage? There's been some there's been some damage, you know, in, in certain kind of digitization projects. So we've had projects to digitize huge collect theses and the the and it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't anyone's fault much it wasn't like the digitization assistants were handling um the collections badly or anything like that it was just sometimes you can't tell how fragile an item might be until you actually open it up so you might just open it up slightly and it just falls apart but it's not obvious from sitting on the shelf that it needed any kind of um conservation work beforehand things things break like a you know maybe a board break off a book just as soon as you open it just because it's so fragile and it hasn't been opened up for centuries probably it's been on a shelf for that long but no, I don't think I've seen anything that was irreparable that we had to kind of say oh that that's it for that object we'll, we'll <laughs> we won't be using it again yeah interesting yeah so um our final question from Gary is have you seen an increase in interest in your field as a result of TV programmes like Bake or Fortune and Britain's Lost Masterpieces? Oh, interesting. Um, personally, I have. I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't think I've seen an increase. There's always been people interested in, you know, coming to volunteer with us, kind of from the student population, and and probably get a steady amount of of, of people emailing me about kind of opportunities and things but I I wouldn't say that I've seen an an increase but I, yeah now that I think about it it's quite surprising because there has had a lot more um publicity and kind of conservation and 
there's that kind of one behind the scenes at the museum and things like that. So, yeah, I'm, I, I, yeah, may, maybe there has been more interest, but more directed at maybe the kind of Institute of Conservation rather than kind of coming directly to me. But yeah, interesting question. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. Um, so if anyone has any more questions that they haven't managed to ask in this time, you can um, send them to one of us and we'll try and get Emily to answer it and hopefully email a response. But for now, I'm going to hand back to Lily. Uh, thank you so much for all your questions, everyone. And thank you for being here. And everything has been so interesting. I'm sure we could have chatted for much longer. But before we go, on behalf of myself and Martha and Laura and everyone, thank you so much, Emily. It's been so fantastic to meet you officially, to gain a little insight into the type of work you do. And I hope that you join as an audience member for future ones. And most importantly, thank you so much for all your care and consideration of the questions. It's, <laughs> it has made my afternoon. Um, so that was the Special Collections Conservator. And you have officially been met, Emily. Thank you. <laughs> Great, yeah, thank you so much. I, re I really enjoyed it. And yeah, if there are any other questions, feel free to, to email me. Lovely, yeah. Well, we also want to thank each and every one of you for attending. This is a reminder that there is plenty of things coming up with the CRC, everything that the fantastic group of voice volunteers are working on. So we will keep you posted on newsletters and the podcasts on Meet the Series. Uh, just keep an eye on social media for updates and Martha can link to all the voice social media in case anyone would like to uh, follow that. Have a great rest of your week all. Thank you again, Emily. Okay, thank you so much. Enjoy your thank week. Thank you, Emily. And thanks to Lily as well and Martha. You've been listening to We've Got History. This was an episode of Meet the Series from the CRC. Thanks to Laura Beatty and the team of volunteers behind Voice, Catherine Alexander, Connor Wimblett, Daisy Collins, Evie Stevenson, Lily Mellon, Martha Brownhill and Tessa Rodriguez. This episode was hosted by Lily Mellon. The Special Collections Conservator was Emily Hick. Episode edited by Lily Mellon. Cover art by Louisa Grieve. Musical stings by Chris Murdoch. Please stay tuned over the coming months for more additions to We've Got History Between Us. You can attend the Meet the Series in person and ask questions on the day. Thank you for downloading this podcast.